rant. Like, <laughs> like she wants me to get in. We're like, yeah, it's so outrageous. I didn't want to like get Supply into a thing with her. But in my head, I'm like, just explain it is, economics. To it's her. October 31st. <laughs> you get what you can. Like you pay more than you should because tomorrow it's going to be half price. Yeah. Like if you want candy right now, uh-huh. this is what they have for you, and it's double what it's worth. Because it's Halloween night. Get over yourself, lady. Uh-huh. Apparently my one coworker <laughs> forgot to buy candy on Halloween and was, like, rushing off of the store at, like, 4.30 and wound up having to get it at Canadian Tire because everywhere else in her area was sold out. Because she lives, like, way out in, the, in like, the suburbs. But it was very, like, funny. <laughs> Welcome to the Trade Waiters. Yay! Uh, it's yet another podcast. Again? Yeah. Yeah. We have... Uh, first we have to do our spoiler warning. Eh. 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 Okay. Uh, today <laughs> on our episode of the Trade Waiters, we are... Uh, we have read Two Generals by Scott Chandler. Uh, and if you have not read this book, maybe don't listen to this podcast. If At least not if you care about spoilers, because we are assuming you've read it and we're going to talk about the whole thing. Yes. Including the twist endings. Uh, it's World War II. We know how it ended. There's n- there's no twist ending. Oh, Spoiler! Oh, there's no know. twist ending. <laughs> ha! If Inglorious <laughs> Bastards has taught me anything. Yeah, it has. Sometimes World War II doesn't end the way you think it does. Okay, we're, we're reviewing comics on this podcast, not movies. I just want to make that clear. All right. Uh, well, we'll go with the, the superior medium. Whoa. Shots fired. That's right. That's right. Quentin Tarantino can take it up with me later. Um, He'd probably agree with you. <laughs> no, he wouldn't. But that's fine. That's fine. He, he loves his medium, and I love mine. That's, there you go. that's just fine. I ship it. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. Uh, so, uh, as I said, today's book is Two Generals, uh, but before we say anything else about the book, we need to have our character-revealing question. This is something we do every episode, where you get to find out a little bit more about who these trade waiters are, who these people are that have been talking at you for the last, I don't know how many minutes. Um, so today's character-revealing question is going to be, would you ever write a comic about a war? I'm not sure what the answers to this question are going to be. I have not told the other trade waiters what the question would be ahead of time. So we're going to find this out right it's now. It's true. It was sealed in an envelope. <laughs> That's right. I have it right just here. Just before uh, this recording. Okay. Uh, so, Jeff, let's right. start with you. Okay. Uh, so First yeah, of all, I'm, who are you? I am Jeff. I am Jeff Ellis. I make several different comics, uh, currently working on uh, Crossroads. Um, and I would totally do a comic about, uh, World War II, um, about my grandfathers in the war. Uh, I started my comics career with stories about my grandfather, um, and it seems appropriate to continue that trend forward. Um, my grandfather's war stories would not be nearly as compelling as uh, what Scott Chandler has to work with, but that's what I would probably do. Um, 
potentially maybe talk about my great-grandfather, because he apparently was in the Great War and walked with a limp afterwards. So he may have some more, more interesting tales. Uh, but both my grandfathers were stationed in Canada for the duration of World War II. Uh, one of them was a weatherman who uh, would inform the pilots if it was safe to take off or not, and the other one trained people in anti-aircraft guns. And he got so good at training people in anti-aircraft guns, when the day came for him to ship out, they told him he was overqualified to participate in the war. That <laughs> 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 wow. was an actual, from his commanding officer, he said, what are you doing here? He looked at his papers, and he said, well, I'm supposed to go to Europe. He said, oh, no, you're overqualified. Go, go back to the office. We've got to fix this. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, Angela. Ah, well, would I ever write comics about the war? Well, it's interesting, because I feel like uh, the war has, even after so many generations, has a really large bearing on our psyche. And uh, as you know, I've been working on a comic that's kind of a reflection on how the war has permeated our culture more than the war itself. But uh, would I tell a comic directly about a particular war? I'm not so sure. Uh, my grandfather also fought in World War II. He was an army engineer and he did go overseas. But unfortunately I don't have access to any of that information. I, he was very tight-lipped and didn't tell anyone about what happened even to his dying day. So mm. as far as I know all of that is lost. And if I went into heavily researching something like that, maybe, like, maybe, but I don't think it's my bag. I don't think it'll, it would be something I'd want to dwell on, except in a very stylized way. Okay. Kathleen? Yes. Hi, I'm Kathleen Gross. Um, I think that, well, no, I don't think, I know that I have no interest in telling uh, stories about war. Um, I think there are other people who are more interested in that subject who could do a better job and it just doesn't interest me because I find it just extremely upsetting. Um, and I guess I find uh, maybe war itself not the most interesting thing to write about, but its effects on like everyday people, um, really interesting. Yeah. But uh, yeah, not for me. It's, it's just not for me. So no. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this is something I've thought about uh, off and on over the years, and um, there are several stories I've done that are sort of, they take place uh, at the edges of war or sort of around the periphery, where it's either the home front and there's a war happening in the distant background, or it's the aftermath, and it's uh, about society restructuring in, after a war has taken place. But I don't think I would feel qualified to write a story about an actual war whether it's a real war or historical or fictional, uh, just because it's too too far outside my personal experience. Uh, like I, I think I have pretty good research skills. Um, I have, I can employ empathy and extrapolation and write a lot of stories that are not things I've actually done. But war is too different from anything I've ever done. I don't think I would necessarily do a good job of that. Um, Speaking of uh, World War II, I had one grandfather who was in the war. Uh, he was a, a navigator on a plane uh, in the Battle of Britain, I assume. Uh, but I, he died before I was born, so I don't have any stories I could use, and I don't know if he kept any records or anything like that, so there's not a lot I could go on with that. Um, my other grandfather stayed uh, in Canada during the war. He was... 
uh, a Mennonite who was their pacifist, so he was not allowed to go by his uh, friends and family and neighbors. Mm. Uh, although I only found out this found this out recently, he apparently really wanted to go to war. Uh, he was uh, he felt a bit put out that this expectation was put on him that he had to uh, stick with this uh, pacifist mandate of the the Mennonites and that he couldn't go off to war and so. Uh, because of the way the the law worked at the time, what he had to do is he had there were a, a list of jobs he could pick from. So he was originally an electrician, but during the war he had to be a farmer because that was one of the uh, one of the few acceptable jobs to do if you weren't going to going to war. Wow, mm. that's funny. They couldn't find work for an electrician. Mm. <sighs> I guess not. Uh, maybe uh, maybe I think it was just that farming was considered more important. Oh wow, that's what? such a funny story. Sorry, Jeff, but. Uh -huh. uh, because I, I heard something similar by way of my grandmother. So my grandfather never talked about this. But my grandfather in America was exempt because he was in university at the time. And the pressure to go was so strong. He felt so guilted out by everyone around him that he ended up dropping out and going overseas. Oh. Hmm. Yeah. I think because I'm a bit younger than the rest of you, I think my grandparents were too young. Um, and my great-grandparents great were too old. Um mm -hmm to be involved in that particular war. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, I was just curious, John, would being an electrician work against uh, the Mennonite concerns? Because uh, then you could be repairing vehicles that could be used for, like, war um, Well, I think, it, I think if he had been an electrician for the army, that would have been a problem. Okay. But he was just, a, like, a domestic right. electrician. Yeah, I mean, because that's true. Like, there's still just peacetime electric yeah. electric Electrical work that needs yeah. to be done. But. And he wasn't one of the mm -hmm. subset of Mennonites right. that like shun technology or oh. whatever. Oh yeah, no, but my yeah, both my um both my grandparents were of just the right age to be participating in the war. And my my grandfather Bruce, uh specifically uh him and like five friends uh were working at a factory and they said, you know, this factory work sucks. We should be going over there and making a difference and fighting the Nazis. And they just all together like went down to the recruitment office and <laughs> signed up. Wow. And uh, they were actually all expecting to go overseas, but my grandfather sort of fell into doing this anti-aircraft training and, yeah, never, never got to see combat. But my other grandfather, I don't quite know all of his story, but um, my understanding is that he wanted to contribute, but he also didn't really want to be holding a gun, so he was skilled enough that, because he was a math professor, that he could do the calculations and figure out uh, the weather predictions. And so then he fell into doing that, so that that gave him a sense of contributing without having to actually be in a trench somewhere with a machine gun. <laughs> okay. So, uh, that, those answers were more interesting than I would have expected. Thank you. That was a really good question. Uh, <laughs> okay, so, uh, Jeff, do you want to introduce uh, today's book? No. It was me. Angela. Oh, I'm sorry. I know, you would think. It was uh, Jeff Ellis, Mr. Let's Tell Stories About My Grandfather. I mean, <laughs> uh, actually, I apologize. Me, but to be fair, I did pick it because I thought Jeff would like it so much. <laughs> you picked correctly. <laughs> if you're not careful, it will sound like I chose this book. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... The book that we're reviewing today is called Two Generals, and it is by Scott Chandler. Uh, if you could, if I'm, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about okay. Scott Chandler now. <laughs> Please do. Uh, he lives in Waterloo, Ontario, and he's before he got into graphic novels, he actually had quite an established career as a commercial art and animator. 
Uh, but he moved into graphic novels sometime around the early 2000s, and he started out uh, working with a writer named Jay Torres. And he published two books during that time. Uh, the first was about a 1960s girl group, uh, and that was called Days Like This. And it was nominated, his first graphic novel, nominated for the ALA Best Books for Teens in 2004. Wow. Yeah. And then he followed that up with the same writer to do Scandalous in 2004, and that's based in 1950s Hollywood. So hmm. no stranger to period pieces, no stranger to research. From then on, he decided to branch out into his own work, and he uh, published a book called Northwest Passage, which was a fictionalized adventure, but still based in a historical time period where Canadians were exploring the Northwest Passage. I thought that was him. I've seen that book around, and after reading this book, I thought, hmm, I wonder if this is the same guy as that other book. Well, you should check it out, because it was nominated for an Eisner, a Harvey, a Schuster, and a Doug Wright uh, Award. Ooh. Ooh. I believe... Uh, this book was also nominated for a few of those awards. Yes, it uh, it had a double Eisner nom and a double Schuster nom. Whoa. <laughs> uh, after the Northwest Passage, and lately he's been working on a series of young adult adventure novels called The Three Thieves. Uh, there are seven books in total. He's published six and working on the seventh. So yeah. since just moving into graphic novels relatively recently, he's been quite prolific <laughs> uh, and quite successful. So the two journals... The two generals, other than these nominations that I mentioned, it won the Ontario Library Association's White Pine Award and was named mm -hmm. Chapter Indigo's Best Books of 2010, and it was exerted in Best American Comics 2012. Uh, so not everyone will know about those awards I've been throwing out, Eisner, Schuster, Doug Wright, and Harvey, but they are very prestigious in the world of comics and mm -hmm. uh, I think well-deserved. Oh, yeah. So the reason that I chose this book is I actually met the author at uh, the Toronto Comic Art Fest. Okay. Mm. He did a talk at the World Word Balloon Academy in 2014. Uh, so he did a piece about research uh, mm -hmm. and doing research for a historical graphic novel, which was a topic that I wanted to know more about. So I went and attended his lecture. And I was really taken by the story of how he decided to put together this book. So he talked about how... He had grown up with his grandfather, right, and had heard a lot of stories from his grandfather, but not a lot about the war. But he was still quite close to his grandfather. And after his grandfather's death, this is Law Chandler, his grandfather, uh, he found two of his diaries, which covered this period when he was in the war. And he read through these diaries and was so impressed that he decided that he wanted to adapt this into, uh, for a number of reasons, he wanted to adapt it into a graphic novel. And this... Uh, led him on a huge series of research. So he had the primary source, which was these two diaries, but he also went to the uh, the library. Did I write it down? Yeah, no, it's the library of the actual regiment in his hometown. Oh. So we went to the regiment, and they keep all the, what they're called the war diaries or something. So every single troop movement, every single casualty, every wow. single date and time and weather, and all this stuff is recorded in what's called the war diaries. And it was kept at his local regiment. And so he would go down there and do research. And he ended up meeting a couple of veterans who were in his grandfather's squadron. And were able to tell him more stories and provide more color that he didn't get from any of his primary sources. Mm. And the other primary source that he used was the letters between uh, Jack Chrysler, mm -hmm. Jack and his wife. So he, he had quite a hard time actually tracking down the wife. Because, you know, Jack <laughs> had died so long ago and, like... 
his wife had gone on to do her own life, but he ended up tracking her down through, I think, an ad. If I might be misremembering this, but he like, <laughs> posted an ad in her hometown and ended up finding her. She, I she guess would he, have been in England, wouldn't she? Yeah. yeah. I guess you can't just look up old people on Facebook. They might yeah, not be old, there. old people. Just Google it. <laughs> no, no, no. But if you, know the, <laughs> if you know the person's name, then you can't necessarily find them on the internet. Yeah. So that was one of the primary sources, which actually lended quite a bit to Jack Chrysler's side of the story. Uh, so, yeah, as I've mentioned, this, the story of the two generals is about these two best friends, Law Chandler and uh, Jack Chrysler. And it's a bit, it's a, it's an epic story, but on a very small scale, I feel. Like, it follows just two people throughout this grand theater of war. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting to me, not only because it has such a deep connection to the author and this historical fiction research aspect, but because it's a Canadian story. Mm-hmm. And World War II has been, you know, very thoroughly explored. And yet, the Canadian side of the story is not very, very often touched on. I, I had an argument with American once. Yes. <laughs> who would not accept that Canada participated Ugh. in World War II. Oh, my God. They were like, no, no, we studied it in history class. It was Britain and the United oh, States man. and Japan and Germany and Italy and France. And I'm like, who was part of Britain? And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, Canada and Australia and New Zealand were all colonies of Britain at that time. So if Britain went to war, yeah, huh? And he's yeah. just like, huh? Oh, Not know. to mention India and <laughs> Southeast Asia yes. and like half of Africa. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of interesting stories that are unex- under underexplored. I feel it was called a World War yeah, after yeah. all. Well, uh, apparently, not all countries participated in the okay, war, okay. to some people. <laughs> uh, we're just going to sit this one out. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was the we're, Americans. We're going to sit this out, eh? <laughs> Sorry. No, that's, that's the Iraq war. <laughs> we'll be at the Tim Hortons. <laughs> <laughs> that was in Afghanistan. <laughs> oh. and they built the Tim oh. Hortons in Afghanistan. They did, they did. <laughs> too soon, too soon. <laughs> okay. Well, um, um, do we want to do a round table of generally what sure. everyone thought? Yeah. Sure. I guess I'm starting. Um, Yeah, uh, so my initial reaction was like, this is uh, just looking at the book. It's very good book design. Um, uh, For those of you at home, I have the hardcover, and it looks like a, it's sort of like a faux leather-bound diary look with the title stamped in. So it's it's a very, like, pleasing book uh, to read. Um, I feel like maybe I'm a little lukewarm on this book, but I think... Like, I think it's a solid comic, I just don't think that I am the intended audience. Uh, I am not huge on war stories, so that is go- definitely going to color my impression of this book, but I do think it's a solid comic. I did cry at the end both times I read it, but I cry at all war stories, so, especially <laughs> World War Two. It just gets to me when people die. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, um, I think that um, this book would be interesting in um, an academic setting. Uh, I think it would be interesting as part of the grade 10 um, Canadian history cur- curriculum. Um, and I, I think it would like be interesting. Um, I think you could teach a really interesting class on World War II memoir and graphic novels because there are a number of them, and I think it's very interesting how that war has affected or, like, being represented in this medium. That's true. But, and they're yeah. all very different, all the ones I can think of. Yeah. Anyway, so that was sort of my takeaway from this book, just on the surface. Okay. Um, I enjoyed this book. Uh, I think I enjoyed the second half a lot more than the first half. Um, like, one thing that I... I know we're supposed to be talking about positives and we're not talking about negatives yet, but I felt like it wasn't a lot of characterization in the book, which we can talk about 
later, but apart from that, uh, I liked a lot. I liked everything else about this book. Uh, it's the the way that he puts comics together is really impressive. There are a lot of things that really stood out for me. Uh, the color is amazing. The way that he oh, uses yeah. the limited palette, um, the limited palette, it's like a greenish gray uh, with like plain gray for most of it. And then there's occasional bits of red and just the emotional impact of the different colors is obviously intentional and very effective. My, my impression of the color palette was that the reds were used in the violent scenes. Generally speaking, yes. Uh, so, I thought that it was like red came up whenever they were discussing death. Mm. Or like death was yes, happening. that makes or a lot of sense. Sorry, yeah, not uh, violence is not the right way to put it. Yes, when there is death, because like when the girl is hit by the bus, right? That scene is in red. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, when um, Law Chandler is dying, and it's I don't know. If I think it's, it's a his granddaughter. Granddaughter, yeah, yeah is my guess. Is, is sort of watching over him. Like that whole scene is all red. Yeah. So it's, it's like an imminent presence. Yeah. No, and I think that's really beautifully done with color. Yeah. Uh, I really like the focus on the small scale. Um, because there's so many other stories in various media about World War II. And I feel like most people have a pretty good idea of the, the overarching structure of the war. But to get down to the very small details like of a single person and his path from... Canada to France, um, like that, I felt was was definitely a, a useful and an impactful thing to do. And the there's so much of what happens in the second half of the book is like so. The first half of the book, he is uh, he's in the army, he's in training in Britain. Nobody really knows what's going on because the information just doesn't get spread around. Uh, he gets promoted to a position of authority over other people. Uh, but it's just training, 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 life in England, um, life during the, the Blitz. Uh, and then suddenly they find out that they're on their way to France. They don't even necessarily know that this is happening until they're actually on the boats on their way. Because you don't want that information spread around ahead of time. Um, and then the whole second half of the book is uh, the logistics, uh, the logistical problems of such a huge operation and how that has that's the source of most of the problems most of the tension is the fact that you have to wait in line to get on the beach and orders have to come through in a timely fashion what do you do if all the uh command uh all the people in command are killed by a grenade like what's the next step um so it's sort of they're caught between that and the actual fighting against the nazis and it's not a good place to be and like that that feels very sort of like a personal connection more than a lot of other world war ii stories mm-hmm. absolutely yeah, yeah and much more canadian too where canada even though we were in the war didn't like probably didn't have a lot of power to make the really big decisions such as the invasion of normandy mm-hmm. right on what did you think jeff oh all right um I also really like this book. Um, I actually have a very strange uh, tradition. Every November, I watch the HBO series Band of Brothers from start to finish um, before the 11th. So reading this book felt like doing that early, of just like really 
delving into the personal life stories of these uh, soldiers from World War II, um, which is, I think, a really easy war to write about in a lot of ways because when you try to if you were to try to do like a memoir of like the vietnam war or like the iraq war there's a lot more nuance to that conversation where when you look at world war ii it's very cut and dried like we had to stop these people there was really no other way we had to get in boats and we had to invade the beach this just had to happen and there's no oh but what about on their side you know they were people too well they were but they we had to stop them like there's really no, there's no gray area with World War II, which makes sure it like. Agree, but... <laughs> well, I mean, in fact, like... I would even say that in this book, there right. there is sort of those little slivers of gray where it yeah. talks about the in the opening. Yeah. is that what you're talking about? Yeah, in the opening where it sort of shows that mm. things are not great um, in Germany. Like oh, it's yeah. hard hard yes, times yes. there too. Yeah, but also they elected this awful. Yes. I'm I'm speaking about. World War II in broad terms. But I think, like, he does a really good job of getting into some of the nuance of that, like, acknowledging <laughs> that, yes, there were civilians being really badly affected by the, you know, the government that got elected, but that's a end result of some policies that we put through. And, yeah, I mean, like, there is a, there is nuance there, but I just think, overall, like, if we're talking about a war, this was one that was kind of inevitable. It's, like, it, 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 it ultimately we had to stop the Nazis. Like, there, there was really... You're not going to negotiate your way out of that, right? Um, where other other wars, you can really make a good case for, like, do we even need to be here in the first place? Maybe we should just stay home and not interfere. But this was a, a point in history where we needed to interfere, right? Um, or at least there was consensus. Yes, there point. was consensus <laughs> among the majority of people that... And, and that remains invasion so, was probably, too. That invasion, probably a good invasion. In fact, I find I find it interesting that uh, every war since World War II has always been put to the World War II test. Like, is this as bad as the Nazis? Yeah. And that's sort of the deciding factor for most countries, I think, to decide whether or not this war is justified. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, no, I mean, just, like, the, the pacing, uh, the approach to storytelling, um, the, the fact that he's digging out of his uh, grandfather's diary, I mean, this is, like, the kind of comic about my grandfather I would love to make myself. Like, just the attention to detail and really creating a character out of an ancestor. Um, I just love the whole approach to this. Um, a little sidebar, uh, which is maybe slightly a complaint. Uh, this has nothing to do with the actual content of the book. Um, but I did mention this earlier. So I bought mine on Kobo. So I read mine on an iPad. And uh, looking at the hard copies you guys have, I think I'm probably going to buy that because it's a beautiful book. And the Kobo version of this book is crazy. Like, there's a table of contents, but it doesn't take you to the different pages. There's part one and part two. And there's panel by panel. And then there's this thing called, called Reflow. That's really straightforward, <laughs> right? You know what's going to happen if you push the Reflow button, right? Um. Well, apparently what that does is that actually will put the pages together like this. But I didn't find that until I finished reading it. So my entire experience of this book was this, where I'm reading it one panel at a time. Ooh, Scott that's terrible. Chan Scott Chandler, he is amazing with the sequential, like, moment-to-moment action-to-action panels. So he has these beautiful pa panels that are almost the same as the last panel, with just a small change where someone turns their head or the camera just moves slightly, and seeing the, like, 
full pages, it was like so much nicer to experience with like the full pages of art. Oh yeah, because they're uh, in and of themselves, they're they're gorgeous. It really made me think of, of something Scott McCloud had said that like experiencing a comic digitally, where you're just sliding panel by panel, is not truly experiencing comics. Where you need to see the page to really get the full experience. And I really felt that with this. And so I guess I'm just saying, Kobo, get your act together. Like, Comixology has a really easy interface where you can choose the panel by panel or the full page. And it's very intuitive. And actually, after I finished reading this on Kobo, uh, I got a notification from Sequential that I could buy that on their app. And um, I probably would have bought it on Sequential had, I, had it been offered to me earlier. Um, so the Linda Berry Kobo I bought for the last podcast worked fine, but this was a terribly put-together Kobo book. <laughs> okay, so, in favor of the book in general, <laughs> yeah. Kobo edition. Uh, which is fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, so, my overall impressions, I mean, obviously I selected this book, so I found it had something of merit to discuss. Uh, I'm kind of in the same camp as you, Kathleen, where war stories are just, I find them really distressing. And it's funny because the reason I want to go into writing war, at least from that stylistic perspective, is because that's my horror. Right? I like digging into why I think war is so horrifying and the impact, it, the broader impact it has. And to me, World War II is kind of this specter that looms in our culture. It's something that is in the past, but it's, it's actually pretty recently in the past. And it, it dominates the psyche of so much of our media. And I feel like there's this trickle-down effect. Um, and so for that reason, I've been interested in World War II. And I've been interested in the history of it. Uh, and I actually, I went to Caen in Normandy. Uh, I visited it uh, as part of a World War II style exploration tour while I was over in Europe. And they still wave Canada flags in hmm. Caen. They still have them on the thing. They still very much remember the role that Canada played uh, in, in World War II and in the invasion of Normandy. But as I mentioned, one of the issues that I have is that Canada is almost never represented in these stories. It's never represented even in any of the Normandy stories, even though Juno Beach was huge. The Canadians were actually the most quote-unquote successful regiment, uh, successful group invading Normandy. They got the farthest out of anyone else. And the story is never told. It's never, <laughs> never told, except in this book. And so it's one of these books that I am really glad exists. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like it, it fills a really good role. It's really well executed. Uh, but is it super enjoyable? I mean, from a comics perspective, it's heavy, right? It's a heavy book to read, and it should be. Uh, but it's not my favorite book. Okay, Absolutely, yeah. I agree that it needs to exist. Yes. Like, it's an important comic. Yes, yeah. and it's well done. Yes. It's oh, yeah. Very well executed. Especially if, if the author is this close to the subject matter it's his father was it's his, his grandfather, grandfather grandfather sorry it, his grandfather who was doing this so he uh like if you wait another generation you don't have that connection necessarily anymore so it, it, now is the time to do it yeah no I, I i um i think that uh you know it it's definitely a book for people that like uh reading stories about world war Two. if you're yeah. not if you're not a fan of, of like the World War II fiction, uh, probably not a good fit. But mm -hmm. I think um, for what it is, it's really well executed. I actually do, uh, now that you guys like brought it up, I mean, I will say that I think um, looking back on it, I, I really appreciated his approach to the story because he does 
take some sidebars to humanize the Germans and sort of acknowledge that, you know, they're not just a faceless enemy that you can, you know, f- shoot machine guns at and blow up in a theater mm. a la Inglorious Bastards. Like, <laughs> there are real people who are making their own decisions to the best of their ability and, and dealing with the repercussions. Well, also, and, too, just the, the scale of the decisions that are being made draw everybody else in the world with them. Yes. Even if it's and ultimately not very many people making those decisions. Yeah. And uh, do you think the additional generation removal, because it is the grandfather, not mm-hmm. the father, do you think that extra generation makes it possible to see that other side, to explore that other side? I think, well, depending on the author, I think it's probably easier, or more likely anyways. No, I, I think that if it was the son, you probably wouldn't have um, as many musings about the socioeconomic state of Germany pre-World mm. War II where the grandson, you have that distance to go like, well, you know, Grandpa, he had to fight in that war, but let's really look at the causes of why, why it was that Grandpa had to go to that war. Um, no, I think, I think that gives you the distance that's necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was also just going to say, as far as the execution goes, like, despite it being a story about war, I felt that he was very sparing in the violence. Like, he really tried to... Uh, imply the violence without showing it directly. Like, it was not very... It was definitely not exploitive, and it was not super graphic. Like, it showed you enough that it did... It did cause a reaction, but I think that it was handled as, I don't know, carefully as possible. Yeah, as someone who is very easily upset by gore and finds, like, violent things hard to read, like, this was manageable. Um, I think his his style, while being realistic, is also cartoony enough with the bodies, um, and there was enough sort of subtlety in just the way it was executed and handled that it wasn't extremely horrific while still being weighty and serious. Mm-hmm. I think the way that they achieved that, I think the way that he, he did this so skillfully, is that he would imply something violent had happened without going into too much detail, but then focus on the reactions of the characters. Mm. Uh, and he also did a few things where he called back to previous times. So the the guy whose friend got blown up like the second he got to the front, and then he had to be dragged away because it had driven him to madness. Is the way mm. it was explained. And then Law he passes someone who's dead on a battlefield, and he thinks back to that guy who had been driven crazy. So mm-hmm. it's not necessarily that he had been driven to madness, but he's thinking about being driven to madness mm-hmm. because it's so horrifying. Yeah. And I thought that was a really effective way to to manage that. But yeah. yeah, I would not. I would not say it's gratuitous, but serious enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it very, shows the reality of it without, you know. Yeah. It's very journalistic. Yeah, it's like just the facts. Here are the things that happened. Yeah, and the the horror that's in it comes from the facts, not from being put emotionally into that context. Yeah. But there's definitely drawbacks to that method as well. Yeah. And as you said, like, there's not a lot of characterization. Mm-hmm. I would agree. I feel like by the end, I'm not super clear on the kind of guy that Law was. Yeah, this is actually one thing that uh, maybe kept me from getting super into this book, was that I felt it was very... Um, very kind of rigid in its telling. Um, it was very factual. Um, and just, you know, followed one point to the next without a lot of um, room for, like you said, characterization and and just sort of um, even getting to see, um, like, uh, the protagonist in the later years. Like, I found it... um, I wasn't sure about this creative decision, how there's that one scene with the granddaughter in the hospital room, and it doesn't get picked up 
really at any other point in in the book. There's no other sort of present day comparison or like mm. um, moment of this post war law. And I kind of I kind of wish that was there, just you know, as just an added layer. But mm. um, yeah, like I don't know. That's just personal preference. <laughs> I I was surprised uh, when part two led in with uh, law. In, on life, like on his life support and his deathbed, basically, because um, I, I was expecting that they were going to go right into the invasion and just keep with the war story, and to suddenly jump into the 21st century, uh, I found a bit disorienting. I thought, mm. oh, well, like what, what, why are we looking at this? Is this going somewhere? And then I would agree that, like, ultimately, that just seemed like it was there for like a break, and then it didn't really pick up again. Uh. And, and, if in a I, meaningful way. If I could, I feel like the purpose of that scene was to show that the events, even though they happened in his youth and for this mm. relatively brief period of time, they haunted him to his dying day. Right. You know, yeah, that's like, fair. To, yeah. to his dying day, the sound of fireworks would recall him to that time. Right. Well, especially yeah. in on his dying day, where he's not necessarily in the best mental state at that point, right. and this is when all those memories keep flooding back to him. Right. Uh, yeah. Like I felt that there were a lot of jumps back and forth in time. That was maybe the most jarring of them, but uh, I thought they were really effectively done, where we f learn the information in the story in the order that the author has chosen, not in the order that they happen. And the effect of them ha being revealed in that order, I thought was really effective. Um, like the, the opening scene, for example, uh, I'm, I'm just, I, I love the, the, what this opening scene did, at least when I was reading it, where uh, the opening scene has uh, Law on the battlefield, smoking a cigarette, surrounded by uh, the bodies of his comrades. Uh, and when I first read these first few pages, uh, the panel that is in black and white that has a, a church, somehow I transposed in my mind that he was looking at that church, mm -hmm. but that church is not there. Like Even on this panel, you can tell there is no church there. But somehow I just remembered there being a church there. And then later on in the story, we go, we cut back to the scene where that panel comes from with the church, where this is when they're still in England and he's talking to his friend and he's musing on uh, the, the death of friends and uh, that people only live on if you remember them and all this kind of stuff. And it's this very sort of quiet moment in, in a church graveyard. Uh, and that is where that panel is picked from. And then we come back later to that scene near the end of the book where we find out why he's standing in a field surrounded by the bodies of his comrades. And only then did it clue into me that, oh, he's remembering this scene from before. This is not a thing that actually happened. So the, just the ability of two panels next to each other sort of combining in my mind in a different way at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book I thought was a master class in, in comic making. That's, yeah. that's comics, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, just, uh, I want to put, I mean, this is kind of changing gears, but I also just wanted to throw out that um, I learned something new from this book, which is that they sent Canadian soldiers 
into battle with bicycles. Yeah, actually, I <laughs> not very good know bicycles. That. I, and, and, I read this book. And just speaking as someone who rides a bicycle all the time, <laughs> the fact that we have Canadians on bicycles like charging into like German occupied France was just super exciting to Canadians me. on bicycles took Normandy. Yeah, Canadians <laughs> on bicycles. Like that doesn't even make sense to me. Why would you be on a bicycle? It seems like the such a weird inefficient way of, of of going into well, battle, and it, it no. was no. You can cover a lot of ground on a bike. Yes. It has zero fuel requirements. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it didn't work out as intended. But no. I, I just feel like you'd be a sitting duck, though. Like you can't oh, really shoot is, back. This is the bike. logistics, though. Like they had this massive, epic plan that involves putting soldiers all along the course, the coast of Normandy. Right. And there's so many steps to this plan. It's like yeah, piles and piles of like details. Yeah. Every little thing you have to have all your equipment with you. And you can tell that someone thought this was a really good idea, and they yep. probably had good grounds for saying, okay, they're going to need some way to get around when we get there. We can't send horses. Yep. We don't have enough tanks or armored vehicles. We're sending everything over on a boat. We yeah. can't send yeah. that many cars. Yeah. So bicycles. It's going to be yeah. bicycles. No one's ever done this before. It's brilliant. We're going to do this. Yeah. But then in practice, they forget that, like, what do you do when the tires break and, yeah. like, you, don't have, you have one repair kit for your entire unit? Yeah, I just fixed two flats last week. I can't imagine trying to fix a flat underground car. I did. I did enjoy the scene in training where the one guy was like, "Um, I don't know how to ride this. Uh, we couldn't afford a bike." And <laughs> they're like, "Okay, I guess we're gonna teach everyone how to do this. How many of you can't do it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speak up! Like, yeah, yeah. we need to know. We're don't going into battle." Put your hand up if you yeah. Know how to ride a bike. And again, it's something that someone, whoever came up with this bicycle plan, didn't really think about that. Oh wait, we've just been through the depression. All these kids don't know how to ride a bike. Yeah. yeah. That was probably my favorite scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. The, that, that was a weird extra, like, layer. It's a it's like a little thing, but it's like, I've never heard of bicycles in battle ever, right? In fact, I don't think it was ever fact, done again. In fact, <laughs> I, I am pretty sure that, like, uh, this is that did, like, a joke uh, podcast like a joke radio episode where they were talking about Canadians uh, going into battle on mountain bikes, <laughs> and they did a big feature on like the, the Canadian like mountain bike like battalion, and they got all these phone calls from people like that's the stupidest thing. Canada's an embarrassment. How can we be riding around on bicycles? Um, and that's a real thing. Like it wasn't always a joke. Like there was at one point legit Canadian soldiers riding into battle on bicycles. Amazing. <laughs> I hang around with a lot of mountain bikers, and I feel like a, a downhill mountain bike brigade would be terrifying. Be awesome. In in the right environment with people who are actual mountain bikers and know yeah, how to yeah, ride a yeah. bike, yeah. That's why it's a specific brigade for mountain bikers. Yeah. It's like you know, you test people for parachuting, you test yeah. them for mountain biking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did we have any units in Canada that went into World War Two with kilts? No, no, and that's and that was another nice aspect—the fact that they were a Highland uh, brigade. So then they're all wearing kilts when they're in there, like off off yeah. time. It was yeah, amazing. But not into battle because no. well, yeah. I mean that would be silly. Yeah, I feel like that might have been something that happened in World War One, though. Probably. I can't. Hey, World War One was a mess. If you give the Scots an opportunity to charge into battle wearing a kilt, they will take you up on it. If you give Canadians <laughs> a chance to pretend that they're Scots, they'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sorry if I've offended anyone from Scotland. I'm not. <laughs> oh, uh, oh. So, uh, Jeff, you mentioned earlier something about November 11th. What? What? What is that? Oh, um, not everyone knows. Sorry, for those of you uh, who 
are not um, Canadian. Canadian or from the British colonies. Um, so our Memorial Day is on November the 11th, and it's called uh, Remembrance Day. And it is actually uh, in, uh, in line with the armistice of World War I. So the, the mm -hmm. armistice was signed on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. And that's how stupid that war was that they could yeah. just end it on a like they could pick a date and time with like arbitrary numbers and say let's end it right here. Yeah, that'll be fine. <laughs> um, yeah, and then because they had they, they already celebrated the World War One armistice uh, on November the 11th after World War Two, it just seemed appropriate to continue that tradition forward. And so to this day, um, there will, in fact, now because of recent events in Afghanistan, there will probably be a lot of, a lot more people at the cenotaph uh, than there used to be uh, to commemorate Canadians who died in combat and on November the 11th. One of the things we do in November in Canada is wear a red poppy on our lapel, uh, which is why, or lapel, sorry. Um, <laughs> you wear it on your lapel. No, <laughs> sorry, that's always a word I read and don't speak. Um, but that's why there's two poppies at the end of the book. Um, yeah. It's very yeah. Canadian. It's a, it's a very important symbol uh, yeah. for Canadian war remembrance. Yeah. I, I, don't, yeah, I don't know if Americans ever they read don't the do Flanders Fields about, poem. No. But they don't, um, and they don't do the poppies thing, because I, Britain in does poppies. my first year at university, one of my classmates was American, and she was like, Kathleen, I'm sorry, I don't understand why everyone is wearing a red flower right now. Like, is this a fashion thing that I'm just missing out on? Like, what is this? And I was like, oh, yeah, you're not... You don't know this. Okay, yeah, no, this is what this is. It's Remembrance Day. It's it's about the, like, wars and Canada. <laughs> and remembering uh, those who have, you know, give, given their lives and their service to our country. Yeah. And if we're lucky, hopefully this podcast will be released very near to Remembrance Day. Yep, the day before. So if you want to commemorate Remembrance Day in your own way, uh, I think this book would be a really great way to read and reflect on uh, the events that transformed so many lives. Even if you're not Canadian. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good read. <clears throat> good comic. Okay, uh, any final thoughts? Uh, I think this is a really accessible work as well. I wanted to mention mm -hmm. that. So uh, my mm -hmm. husband is very into World War II and not very into comics, but this is one of the the only comics I've ever successfully gotten to read. What? <laughs> you read a comic, and they asked him if he liked it, he's like, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> that is really high praise. That's Yeah, that's like a glowing endorsement. That is a glowing oh my God. endorsement. So, wow. If you have never read a comic and you are interested in this topic, I would recommend it. I, I'm really taken with this notion of this being like required reading in grade 10, because I think if you wanted uh, teenagers to care about Canadian history, this would be a great way to get teenagers excited about Canadian history. Yeah, well, like, as an aside for comics and, like, an educational <laughs> environment, um, uh, when I was in grade 12, we were reading Fun Home in my grade 12 English class, mm -hmm. and uh, one of my teacher handed out um, excerpts from... Uh, yes. Yes. Also, I went to a very progressive high school. Very progressive. Um... <laughs> I'm not because it's fun home because they're just letting you read comics. Yeah. In oh, well, you haven't been into a class. Uh, yeah, Jeffrey, it's you're an oh, old man. In, it's in the BC oh, curriculum right, now. It's right, like right. says graphic okay. novels. Okay. That's but okay, topic. I right. had a point to this anecdote. But my uh, my teacher um, before we started reading it or like as we started reading it handed out like an excerpt 
um, from one of Scott McCloud's books, because he would hand out, like, some critical theory with whatever we were covering, and he was like, it, this is the first time I've seen everyone, like, immediately heads down reading focused, not, like, you know, sort of shuffling and, like, getting settled, because comics are very, uh, it's, it's a very, like, it absorbs you while you're reading, and it's way easier to engage with than just simple written text. Um, and is also like a little bit more accessible to, to folks who maybe reading is a little bit of a challenge. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I think comics are always like, yes, put them in the educational curriculum always. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the curriculum agrees with you. Good. That's, I, <laughs> As it should. <laughs> I, I got a lot more interested in uh, the history of Manitoba and the Red River settlements uh, after Chester Brown put out his comic than anything I studied in a textbook in grade 10. Possible future trade readers episode. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so I I would recommend this book to anyone who is even a little bit interested in Canadian history. Uh, I think yeah, it's super accessible. Um, like if you don't care about history at all, maybe skip it. But otherwise, yeah, read it. It's good. Yeah, I would absolutely recommend this book. Yeah, I, I think it's important and and should be read. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Alright, um, shoutouts. Oh, my shoutout of the week is to Undertale, which has taken me completely. It's a little Steam game, a little indie $10 Steam game. Very short. And if you've ever played a Japanese role-playing game, it's amazing. It's the most amazing thing ever. <laughs> so it's sort of like a choose-your-own-adventure story, then? Sort of. It's a deconstruction of the genre. And oh, it's right. a meditation on consequences. Whoa. It's very deep, and really amazing. Oh, Undertale. Man. It's called Undertale. We have to oh, find Undertale. out if that actually works on my computer. Yeah, it, everyone's it been on my saying good things. Yeah, no, mine's older and crappier. My media center PC is like a Frankenstein. Okay. I it on that. Okay. Mine's a Mac, though. So. <laughs> It'll probably still work. <laughs> Maybe. I'll, I'll find out. You'd like it. Okay. I think you'd really like it. Okay. And, and who are you again? Oh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, we're, we're supposed well to do shoutouts and like, well, well inter- like tell who we are so people care. All right, fine. Well, Hopefully. I'm Angela Malik. I hey. write a comic called Wasted Talent. You can find it at wastedtalent.ca. Okay. All right. Play Undertale. Okay. <laughs> and I am uh, Jeff Ellis, and you can find my work at jeff-ellis.ca. <laughs> I need to fix that URL. It's <laughs> fine. It's fine. Um. Yeah, uh, you can find all my comic works there, and um, very soon uh, there will be another Cloudscape anthology coming out that I've been editing. Um, more on that later. Um, now, uh, my shout-outs. Um, I've been really busy and haven't been reading a lot of uh, Shame. floppies. Shame. What have you been busy with, Jeff? Oh, what a mm. Working on uh, Bones of the Coast uh, okay. anthology. Shout out to, um, Shout out to Bones of the Coast. <laughs> maybe, well, actually, did we, actually, one thing I was going to say is, did, have we yet uh, talked about, has anyone shouted out uh, Sheltered? No. no. So, I, it is already out in trade, so you don't have to wait for the trade, but I would say, um, if you haven't read Sheltered by Ed Brisson and Johnny Christmas, uh, that is a really cool uh Series that has got a beginning, middle, and end that you can enjoy in three trade trade, trade paperbacks, uh, and it's by two awesome Vancouver comic creators. Yeah, I'll second that. I've read Sheltered yep. a lot. So yeah, that'll be my that'll be my shout out. Okay, 
I'm Kathleen Gross, uh, and you can find my comics at cagcomics.tumblr.com, which is K-A-G-C-O-M-I-X. Um, and I think I also have a Kickstarter going on yes, do. Uh, while when this do. podcast is, is going off, so I guess we'll link that in the description or something, yes, maybe. Yes, we should. Yeah. It's, yep. it's a really good book. You should definitely get Kathleen's book. What's the book called? It's called Last Night at Wormwood High. It's... What? Uh, sort of uh, an ode to wacky teen adventures in a universe where everyone's a monster and the high school's cursed. What? That sounds awesome. <laughs> it is awesome. You should totally get it. Yeah, please. I'm going to put my credit card in Kickstarter right now. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are sweet. Um, anyways, the, the comic I want to shout out is um, Jillian Tamaki's issue of Frontier Magazine, um, which is, it's, uh, you can find it, I think it's, just look it up, it's um, called Sex Coven. So if you like Jillian Tamaki and you like uh, early internet phenomena and strange happenings, definitely check it out. It is a fun read. Okay. Uh, I'm Jonathan Dalton. You can find my work at lostcitycomics.com, although nothing much has changed there since the last few episodes of this podcast. We forgive you. There will be new stuff. You've been I'm, working on a lot. I have. I have a lot of new stuff in the works. Um, Anything you can talk about? Uh, I can talk. I can tell you about the uh, Mulan comic I just finished yesterday. Uh, it's a comic version of the original poem of the Ballad of Mulan. Would you say it's a comic set in a war? Uh, it is. Um, <laughs> the, this is the exception to what I said earlier. The fact that it's only twelve pages is what I think makes it possible. Also, it's not written by me because I basically just took the poem and translated it and drew it in a comic. Um, and I, all these sort of emotional impact comes from the fact that uh, whoever wrote this poem knew what they were talking about. Um, and, like, the descriptions of battle and, like, after the battle seem very real. Like, more real than if this was someone who had never been to a battlefield. Um, so I guess that's my shout-out. I'm going to shout-out myself. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to shout out Kathleen's Kickstarter, but she beat me to it. So You can still shout it out. It's okay. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> I, I might be slightly biased because I was the editor on Last Night at Wormwood High, but uh, I didn't have very much to edit because it was already pretty good. There you go. <laughs> okay. What's our next book? Oh, uh, our oh, next book. Oh, it's going to be um, Tech on Kingcrete by Taya Matsumoto. Okay, so tune in to that uh, next time. The Trade Waiters is presented by Cloudscape Comics. We'd like to thank the Vancouver Public Library for letting us record in their Inspiration Lab and Sleuth for the music. You can find us at www.cloudscapecomics.com.